Hey guys, it's Sunday night, and that means it's Sunday reading night, and I will be reading from a book written by Rudyard Kipling called The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How was your weekend? Mine was pretty good, actually. Not too bad, not too bad, not too bad. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour, or maybe a little more. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can help you. We can help you out. Let me make a sound adjustment here. I don't want to. I don't want to blast you guys out. <laughs> to kingdom come, right? So hang on one second. Okay, that should do it right there for you. Ah. Uh, Today is Sunday reading day, and I usually read from a ghost theme book, whether it's just story, you know, uh, real ghost stories, or just somebody that wrote, wrote that wrote a book that includes ghosts that they that they wrote up. So that's what we're going to be doing today for about an hour. But until that point that I start, uh, if you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so already, please feel free to hit that follow button. Really appreciate it. We're always looking for followers. If you're over on YouTube and you haven't subscribed, please feel free to hit that, sub that subscribe button. I'd really appreciate it. Also, uh, on those both, it goes for both sites. Hang on one second. My button's pushed. There we go. And it goes for both sites that if you happen to like it, if what you hear, show me some thumbs up, some smiley faces, some hearts, things like that. And comment, feel free to comment in the chat room because what that does is it puts us up higher in the in the in the algorithms of both those pages uh twitch also twitch as well and uh it puts this out to more people because the whole key of the show is uh to spread the word about whether you like or don't like the show or, or however that works for you so uh you know if you happen to be having dinner and there's people around you today and uh you like what you hear and you go ahead and call them call them on in and say hey there's this cool little show on where, where, where they read a book every sunday all right, so we're going to be reading from Rudyard Kipling's book today, and I don't know how far we have left to read in this book. I do have another book ready to go through ghost stories, uh, you know, if we happen to end early with Kipling. So uh, we will take a short pause and continue if we get to that point. But uh, if you need to find my team, and, well, you know, I own the California Hospital Investigation Team, and we're 45 strong up in down California. If you think you have a paranormal need, get a hold of us. You can find us all over Facebook. Just Google us. Just Google California Haunts Paranormal Investigation. And we'll pop up, either via the radio show or whatever. Like I said, we're everywhere. Been around 18 years. We're everywhere. And uh, in the case we can't get to you right away because California is this huge state, we do have psychics on staff who can talk, who can call you and talk with you about what may or may not be going on in your home or business. And if it is paranormal, they have the ability to calm things down until we can get out there. So, all right. Anyway, if uh, I'll be reading for about an hour, and if you feel the need to share this, please feel free to share it. And again, show me some love. Show me some love with thumbs up. 
And we do have an event next Sunday with Miriam Nancy Mass, where she's going to do a five to ten, up to ten minute read of Valentine's psychic readings. And you can ask anything you want about your current love affairs or your your future love affairs or your past or, or whatever you want to ask. Because you can feel free to ask Nancy in this. There's only not there's only nine spots available for this event. So you might want to pop on over the California Haunts Meetup page. And there is a link at the bottom. If, if, if you follow the description of this show, there is a link down there for that event to take you to the Meetup page. Okay. That being said, we are continuing with the third story from... Let me get this going here. Here we go. We're continuing with the third story from the uh, Phantom Rickshaw. And this is The Man Who Would Be King. So bear with me so I can get things started. And again, I'll be on for an hour. And again, if I finish this book, Sooner than I anticipated, I do have another book ready to go. All right, so let me have a little sip of water here. My throat's been bugging me a little bit, so let's go out of here. Real quick, who's who's Kipling? Kipling is a gentleman that brought the world and wrote for the world the Jungle Book. So that would be your reference. So the guy that, that invented Baloo the Bear and, all, and Mowgli and all those people, this is who we're reading today. Okay? So here we go. We're at a point where these two men had gone into the wilds of India determined to be kings. And they've gone, and now the one gentleman is back. So this is where we're at, and he's talking about how he was working with the other guy trying to run an empire. So here we go. I won't take a... I won't make a nation, says he. I'll make an empire. These men aren't blacks. We're going to have to change it because I want you guys to remember this was written before the 1900s so you know some of this isn't isn't as woke as it could be. So I won't make a nation says he. I'll make an empire. Those men aren't black. I'm going to salute at that. They're English. Look at their eyes. Look at their mouths. Look at the very way they stand up. They sit on chairs in their own houses. They're the lost tribes or something like it. And then they've grown to be English. I'll take a census in the spring, if the priests don't. Let me double check the sound here. Make sure we got audio today. I've done this whole gig where I've had no audio. Just want to make sure our audio is okay. Just give me a second. Let's see. Let me do this for one second, guys. Let me check the audio. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I did a whole book read where there was no audio and nobody let me know there was no audio. So I'm just trying to prevent that mistake again. Okay, let me start again. Okay, let's get moving. Let's see. Tighten that up. Okay. I won't make a nation, says he. I'll make an empire. These men aren't blacks. They're British. They're English. Look at their eyes. Look at their how. Look at their mouths. Look at the way they stand up. They sit on chairs in their own houses. They're the lost tribes or something like it. And they've grown to, and, and they've grown to be frightened. Ah, I'm sorry, are they grown to be English? I'll take a census in the spring if the priests don't get frightened. There must be a flare. There must be a fair two million of them in these these hills. The villages are full of little children. Two million people, 250,000 fighting men and old English. They only want the rifles and a little drilling. 250,000 men ready to cut in on, on Russia's right flank when she tries for India. Peachy, emperors, emperors of the earth. Raha Brown, 
Raha Brook, I'm sorry, will be a suckling to us. I'll treat with the Viceroy on equal terms. I'll ask him to send me 12 picked English, 12 that I know of, to help me govern a bit. One up here. To help me govern a bit. Okay. I just got lost. Oh, there it is. There's Macray, Sergeant Prisoner, and Single Willie. And Single Willie. Betty is a good dinner order of Youngstown. See, this is what's going on is there's no paragraphs in here, so it's all jammed together. So I'm just trying to make sure I can read this on. Okay, pensioners here. Many is the good dinner he's given me and his wife a pair of trousers. There's Dankin, the warder of Tung's of, of Tung Jail. There's hundreds that I could lay my hand on if I was in India. The voice race will do it for me. I'll send a man through the ground. I'll send a man through in the spring for those men. And I'll write for a dispensation from the Grand Lodge for what I've done as Grand Master. That. And all the Snyders, all, yeah, and all, all the Snyders that'll be thrown out when the native troops in India take up the Martini. The Martini is a rifle. So that, that much I, I determined. The Martini is a rifle. They'll be worn smooth, but they'll do it. But, but they'll do for fighting in these hills. Twelve English, a hundred thousand Snyders, run through the Amir's country in driblets. I'd be content with twenty thousand in one year, and we'd be an empire. When everything was shipshape, I'd hand over the crown, this crown, I'm wearing now, to Queen Victoria on my knees, and she'd say, "Rise up, Sir Daniel Drevo." Oh, it's a big, it's a big, big, I tell you. But there's so much to be done in every place, Bashkai. Kravak, Shu, and everywhere else. What is it, I says? There are no more men coming in to be drilled this autumn. Look at those fat black clouds. They're, they're, they're bringing in the snow. It isn't that, says Daniel, putting his hand very hard on my shoulder. And I don't wish to say anything that's against you. For no other living man would have followed me and made me what I am, as you have done. You're a first-class commander-in-chief. And the people know you. But it's a big country. And somehow you can't help me. Peachy in the way I want to be helped. Go to your blasted priests, then, I said. And I, was, and I was sorry I made that remark. But it did hurt me sore to find Daniel talking so, so superior when I drilled all the men and Donald, and Donald told me. Don't let's quarrel, Peachy's, said Daniel, without cursing. You're a king, too, and a half of this kingdom is yours. But can't you see, Peachy? We want cleverer men than us now, three or four of them, that we can scatter about for our deputies. It's the hugeness of this great state, and I can't always tell the right thing to do, and I haven't time for all I want to do. And here's the winter coming on and all. He put half his beard into his mouth, all red like the gold in his crown. There's another thing, too, says Revo, walking up and down. The winter's coming, and these people won't be giving much trouble. And if they do, we can't move about. I want a wife. For God's sake, leave the women alone, I says. We both got all the work we can. 
though I am a fool. Remember the coon track? The coon track? And keep clear of the women. The coon track only lasts until such time as we was kings. And kings we have been these months past, said, says Dravat, weighing his crown in his hand. You go get a wife too, Peachy, a nice strapping plump girl that'll keep you warm in the winter. They're prettier than English girls, and we can take the pick of them. Boil them once or twice in hot water, and they'll come out like chicken and ham. Nice. Don't tempt me, I says. I will not have any dealings with a woman, not till we are a damn side more settled than we are now. I've been doing the work of two men, and you've been doing the work of three. Let's lie off a bit and see if we can get some better tobacco from Afghan country and run in some good liquor and no women. Who's talking about who's talking about women, says Dravot. I said wife. A queen to breed a king's son for the king. A queen out of the strongest tribe that'll make them your blood brothers. And that'll lie by your side and tell you all the people tell you all the people thinks about you and their own affairs. That's what I want. Do you remember that Bengal woman I kept at Mogul Saray when I was a player? Says I. A fat lot of good she was to me. She taught me the lingo and one or two other things. But what happened? She ran away with the station master's servant and had a half a month's pay. And had the impudence to say that I was her husband. All along, all among the drivers in the running shed, too. We've done with that, says Dravote. These women are whiter than you or me. And a queen I will have for the winter months. For the last time I'm asking, Dad, do not, I says. It will bring us harm. The Bible says that kings ain't to waste their strength on women. Especially when, they, when they've got a new raw kingdom to work over. For the last time of answering, I will, said Dravote. And he went away through the pine trees, looking like a big red devil, the sun being on his crown and beard and all. But getting a wife was not as easy as Dan thought. He put it before the council, and there was no answer till Billy Fish said that he'd better ask the girls. Dravote damned them all round. What's wrong with me? He shouts, standing by the aisle Imbra. Am I a dog, or am I not enough of a man for your wenches? Haven't I put the shadow of my hand over this country? Who stopped the last Afghan raid? It was me, really, but Dravolt was too angry to remember. Who bought your guns? Who repaired the bridges? Who's the grand master of the sign cut in the stone? Says he. And he thumped his hand on the block that, that he used to sit on in the lodge and at council, which opened little like which, which opened like lodge always. Billy Fish said nothing, and no more did the others. Keep your hair on, Dan, said I, and ask the girls, ask the girls. That's how it's done at home, and these people are quite English. The marriage of the king is a matter of state, says Dan, in a white-hot rage, for he could feel, I hope, that he was going against his better mind. He walked out of the council room, and the others sat still, looking at the ground. Billy Fish says, Billy Fish says I to the chief of Ashkai, what's the difficulty here? A straight answer to a true friend. You know, says, says Billy Fish, how should a man tell you 
you know, who knows everything. How can daughters of, of men marry gods or devils? It's not proper. I remember something like that in the Bible. But if after seeing us as long as they had, they still believed we were gods, it wasn't for me to undeceive them. A god can do anything, says I. If the king is fond of a girl, he'll not let her die. She'll have to, said Billy Fish. There are all sorts of gods and devils in these mountains. And now and again, a girl marries one of them and isn't seen anymore. Besides, you two know the marriages of one of, of one of them. Okay, I'm sorry about that. See, again, there's no dividers in these lines. Besides, you two know the mark cut in the stone. Only the gods know that. We thought you were, we thought you were men. So you showed the sign to the master. I wish then that we had explained about the loss of the genuine secrets of a master mason at the first go-off. But I said nothing. All that night there was a blowing of horns in the little dark temple halfway down the hill. And I heard the girl crying fit to die. One of the priests told us that she was being prepared to marry the king. I'll have no notches of that kind, of that kind says Dan. I don't want to interfere with your customs, but I'll take my own wife. The girl's a little bit afraid, says the priest. She thinks she's going to die, and that they are heartening her up down in the temple. Hearten her very tender, then, says Dravot, or I'll, or I'll hearten you with the butt of a gun so you'll never want to be heartened again. He licked his lips, did Dan, and stayed up walking about more than half the night, thinking of the wife that he was going to get in the morning. I wasn't in any means comfortable, for I knew that dealings with a woman in foreign parts, though you was a crown king twenty times over, could not but be risky. I got up very early in the morning while Dravot was asleep, and I saw the priests talking together in whispers, and the chiefs talking together too, and they looked at me out of the corners of their eyes. What is that, fish? I say to the I said, I can't rightly say, says he, but if you can make the king drop all this nonsense about marriage, you'll be doing him and me and yourself a great service. That I do believe, says I. But sure, you know, Billy, as well as me, having fought against and for us, that the king and me are nothing more than two of the finest men that God Almighty ever made. Nothing more, I do assure you. That may be, says Billy Fish. And yet, I should be sorry if it was. He sinks his head upon his great fur cloak for a minute and thinks, King, says he, be you man or god or devil, I'll stick by you today. I have twenty of my men with me, and they will follow me. We'll go to, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Beshkai until the storm blows over. A little snow had fallen in the night, and everything was white except the greasy, fat clouds that blew down and down from the north. Dravot came out of his came out with his crown on his head, swinging his arms and stamping his feet, and looking more pleased than Punch. For the last time, drop it, Dan," said I, says I in a whisper. "Billy Fish here says that there will be a row, a row among my people," says Dravot. "Not much, Peachy. You're a fool not to get a wife too." Where's the girl, says he, with a voice as loud as the braying of a jackass. Call up all the chiefs and priests and let the emperor see if his wife suits him. 
There was no need to call anyone. They were all there, leaning on their guns and spears around the clearing in the center of the pine wood. A lot of priests went down to the little temple to bring up the girl, and the horns blew fit to wake the dead. Billy Fish saunters around and gets as close to Daniel as he could, and behind, and behind him stood his twenty men with matchlocks, not a, not a man of them under six feet. I was next to the dra- Dravote, and behind me was twenty men of the regular army. Up comes the girl, and a, strap, and a strapping wench she was, covered with silver and turquoises, but white as death, and looking back every minute at the priests. She'll do, said Dan, look, looking her over. What's to be afraid of, lass? Come and kiss me. He puts his arm around her. She shuts her eyes, gives a bit of a squeak, and down goes her face in the side of Dan's flaming red beard. The slut's bitten me, says he, clapping his hand to his neck, and sure enough, his hand was red with blood. Billy Fish and two of his matchlock men catches hold of Dan by the shoulders and drags him into the Bashkai lot, while the priests howls their lingo. Neither God nor devil but a man. I was all, t- I was all taken aback. For a priest cut at me in front, and the army behind began firing into the Bashkai men. Into the Bashkai men. God Almighty, says Dan, what is the meaning of this? Come back, come away, says Billy Fish. Ruin and mutiny is the matter. We'll break from. I'm sorry. We'll we'll break from Bash, Bashkai if we have. Sorry about that. I'll get some water here real quick. Okay. I tried to give some sort of orders to my men, the men of the regular army, but it was of no use. So I fired in into the brown of them with an English martini and drilled three beggars in a line. The valley was full of shouting, howling creatures, and every soul was shrieking. Not a god nor a devil, but only a man. The Bushkai troops stuck to Billy Fish, all they were worth. But their matchlocks wasn't half as good as the Kabul breech leaders, the uh, loaders, and four of them dropped. Dan was bellowing like a bull, for he was very wrathy, and Billy Fish had a hard job to prevent him from running out of the crowd. We can't stand, said Billy Fish. Make a run for it down the valley. The whole place is against us. The Mashlock men ran. And we went down the valley in spite of in spite of Dravot. He was swearing horrible and crying out that he was king. The priests rolled great stones on us, and the regular army fired hard. And there wasn't more than six men, not counting Dan, Billy Fish, and me, that came down to the bottom of the valley alive. Then they stopped firing. And the horns of the temple blew again. Come away, for Gord's sake, come away, says Billy Fish. They'll send runners out to all the villages before ever we get to Bashkai. I can protect you there, but I can't do anything now. My own notion is that Dan began to go mad in his head from that hour. He stared up and down like a stuck pig. Then he was all for walking back alone and killing the priest with his bare hands which he could have done. An emperor am I, says Daniel, and next year I shall be a knight of the queen. All right, Dan, says I, but come along now while there's time. It's your fault, says he, for not looking after your army better. 
There was mutiny in the midst, and you didn't know. You damned engine-driving, plate-laying missionary. <laughs> he sat upon a rock and called me every foul name he could lay tongue to. I was too heart-sick to care, though it was all his foolishness that brought this to smash. I'm sorry, Dan, says I. But there's no according for natives. This business is our 57. Maybe we'll make something out of it yet, when we get to Bashkai. Let's get to Bashkai then, says Dan. And by God, when I come back here again, I'll sweep the valley so there isn't there, there isn't a bug in the blanket left. We walked all that day. And all that night, Dan was stumping up and down the snow, chewing his beard and muttering to himself. There's no hope of getting clearer, said Billy Fish. The priests have sent runners to the villages to say that you are only men. Why didn't you stick on as gods till things were more settled? I'm a dead man, says Billy Fish, and he throws himself down on the snow and begins to pray to his gods. Next morning, we was in a cruel bad country, all up and down, no level ground at all, and no food either. The six bash men looked at Billy Fish hungry, as if they wanted to ask something, but they never said a word. At noon, at noon we came to the top of a flat mountain, all covered with snow. And when we climbed up into it, behold, there was an army in position waiting in the middle. The runners have been very quick, says Billy Fish, with a little bit of a laugh. They're waiting for us. Three or four men began to fire from the enemy's side, and a chance shot took Daniel in the calf of the leg. That brought him to his senses. He looks across the snow at the army and sees the rifles that, that, we, that we had brought to the country. We're done for, says he. They are Englishmen, these people. And it's my blasted nonsense that has, brought the, that, that has brought you to this. Get back, Billy Fish, and take your men away. You've done what you could, and now cut for it. Carnahan, says he, shake hands, shake hands with me and go along with Billy. Maybe they won't kill you. I'll go and meet with them alone. It's me that did it. Me, the king. Go, says I. Go to hell, Dan. I'm with you there. I'm with you here. Billy Fish, you clear out, and we too will meet these folk. I'm a chief, says Billy Fish. Quite quiet. I'll stay with you. My men can go. The, the Bashkey fellows didn't wait for a second word, but ran off. And Dan and me and Billy Fish walked across to where the drums were drumming and the horns were horning. It was cold, awful cold. I've got that cold in, me, in, in the back of my head now. There's a lump of it there. The punka coolies had gone to sleep. Two kerosene lamps were blazing in the office, and the perspiration poured down my face and splashed on the blotter as I leaned forward. Carnahan was shivering, and I figured that his, and mine, that his mind might go. I wiped my face, took a fresh grip on the, on, on the piteously mangled hands, and said, What happened after that? The momentary shift of my eyes had broken the clear current. What was you pleased to say? My carnet had. They took them without any sound, not a little whispered all along the snow. Not though the king knocked down the first man that sat hand on him. Not though old Peachy fired not not the old Peachy fired his last cartridge into the brown on, brown of him. Not a single solitary sound did those swines make. 
they just closed up tight. And I tell you, their first stank. There was a man called Billy Fish. A good friend of us all. And they cut his throat. Sir, then and there, like a pig. And the king kicks up the bloody snow and says, We've had a dash fine run for our money. What's coming next? But Peachy, Peachy Telefero, I tell you, sir, in confidence, as between two, between two friends, he lost his head. Sin? No. Sir? Sorry. Sir? No, he didn't. Neither. The king lost his head, so he did, all along, on one of those cutting rope bridges. Kindly let me have the paper cutter, sir. It tilted this way. They marched him a mile across that snow to a rope bridge over a ravine with a river at the bottom. You may have seen such. They prodded him behind like an ox. Damn your eyes, says the king. Did you suppose I can't die like a gentleman? He turns to Peachy. Peachy, that was crying like a child. I brought you to this, Peachy, says he. Brought you out of your happy life to be killed in comparison. Where you was late commander-in-chief. Of the, of the Emperor's forces. Say you forgive me, Peachy. I do, says Peachy. Fully and freely do I forgive you, Dan. Shake hands, Peachy. Says he, I'm going now. Out he goes. Looking neither right nor left. And when he was, when he was plumb into the middle of those crazy dancing ropes, cut you beggars, he shouts. And they cut. And old Dan fell, turning round and round and round, 20,000 miles, for he took half an hour to fall till he struck the water. And I could see his body caught on a rock with a, with a gold crown close beside. But do you know what they did to Peachy between two pine trees? They crucified him. They crucified him, sir, as Peachy's hand will show. They used wooden pegs for his hands and feet, but he didn't die. He hung there and screamed, and they, and they took him down the next day and said it was a miracle that he wasn't dead. They took him down, poor old Peachy, that hadn't done them any harm, that hadn't done them any. He rocked to and fro and wept bitterly, wiping his eyes with the back of his scarred hands and moaning like a child for some ten minutes. They was cruel enough to feed him up in the temple because they said he was more of a god than old Daniel that was a man. Then they turned him out in the snow and told him to go home. And Peachy came home in about a year, begging along the roads quite safe. For Daniel drove out. He walked before and said, Come along, Peachy. It's a big thing we're doing. The mountains they danced at night, and the mountains they tried to fall on Peachy's head. But Dan, he held up his hand, and Peachy came along, bent double. He never let go of Dan's hand, and he never let go of Dan's head. He gave it to him as a present in, in the temple to remind him not to come again. And though the crown was pure gold and Peachy was starving, never would Peachy sell the, sell the same. You know, Devote, sir. You knew right-worshipped Brother Devote. Look at him now. He fumbled in the massive rugs round his bent waist, brought out a black horsehair bag embroidered with silver thread, and shook this thing on my table, the dried, withered head of Daniel Drapote. Ew. The morning sun that had long been pull pulling the lamps, 
struck the red beard and blind sunken eyes. Struck, too, a heavy circuit gold-studded with raw turquoise that Carnahan placed tenderly on the battered template, temples. You be told now, said Carnahan, the emperor and as a bit as, as he lived, the king of Kurdistan, with his crown upon his head, poor old Daniel, that was a monarch once. I shuddered, for in spite of the defacements manifold, I recognized the head of the man of Marmar Junction. Carnahan rose to go. I attempted to stop him. He was not fit to walk abroad. Let me take away the whiskey and give me a little and, and give give me a little money, he gasped. I was a king once. I'll go to the deputy commissioner and ask to sit in the poorhouse till I get my health. No, thank you. I can't wait till you get a carriage for me. I've urgent private affairs in the south at Marwar. He shambled out of the office and he parted in the direction of the deputy commissioner's office the house. That day at noon, I had the occasion to go down to the blinding hot mail, and I saw a crooked man crawling along the white dust of the roadside, his hat in his hand, quavering deloriously after the fashion of the street singers at home. There was not a soul in sight, and he was out of all possible earshot in the houses, and he sang through his nose, turning his head from right to left. The son of man goes forth to war, a golden crown again, his blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in this train. I waited to hear no more, but put, but put the poor wretch into my carriage and drove him off to the nearest missionary for eventual transfer to the asylum. He repeated the hymn twice while he was with me, whom he did not in the least recognize, and I left him singing in the missionary. Two days later, I inquired after his welfare of the superintendent of the asylum. He was admitted suffering from sunstroke, he died early yesterday morning," said the superintendent. "Is it true that he was half that he was half an hour barehanded in the sun at midday?" "Yes," said I. "But do you happen to know if he had anything upon him by any chance when he died?" "Not to my knowledge," said the superintendent. And there the matter rests. Yay! Okay, we have another story behind that one, which I I, I didn't know, but we're going to continue. This is called the finest story in the world. As we continue with the Kipling book. Oh, ever the nightly years were gone, with the old world to the grave. I was a king in Babylon, and you were a Christian slave. W.E. Henley. Okay, let me bring this up just a tad. Okay, maybe it won't let me see. There we go. Yeah, every time it moves over. Okay. His name was Charlie Mears. He was the only son of his mother, who was a widow, and he lived in the north of London, coming into the city every day to work in a bank. He was 20 years old and suffered from aspirations. I met him in a public billiard saloon, where the marker called him by his given name, and he called the marker Bullseyes. Charlie explained a little nervously that he had only come to the place to look on, and since looking on at games of skill is not a chief amusement for the young, I suggested that Charlie should go back to his mother. That was our first step toward better acquaintance. He would, call, he would call on me sometimes in the evenings instead of running about London with his fellow clerks. And before long, speaking of himself as a, as a young man must make himself an undying name, chiefly through verse. Though he was not above sending stories of love and death to the drop o penny in the slot journals. 
It was my fate to sit still while Charlie read me poems of many hundred lines and bulky fragments of plays that would surely shake the world. My reward was his unreserved confidence and the self-revelations and troubles of a young man or almost as holy as those of the maiden. Charlie had never fallen in love and was anxious to do so on the first opportunity. He believed in all things good and all things honorable, but at the same time was curiously careful to let me see that he knew his way about the world and befitted bank clerk on 25 shillings a week. He rhymed dove with love and moon with June, and he devoutly believed that they had never been rhymed before. The long lame gaps in his place he filled up with, with, with hasty words of apology and, and description and swept on, seeing all that he intended to do so clearly that he esteemed it already done, and he turned to me for applause. I fancy that his mother did not encourage his aspirations, and I know that his writing table at home was the edge of his washstand. This he told me almost at the outset of our acquaintance, when he was ravaging the bookshelves, and a little before I was implored to speak the truth as to his chances of writing something really great, you know. Maybe I encouraged him too, too much, for one night called me, his eyes flaming with excitement, and said breathlessly, Do you mind? Can you let me stay here and write all this evening? I won't interrupt you. I won't, really. There's no place for me to write, my, write at my mother's. What's the trouble, I said, knowing well that trouble was. I have a notion in my head that would make the most splendid story that was ever written. Do let me write it out here. It's such a nation. I'm sorry, it's such a notion. My bad. There was no resisting the appeal. I set him a table. He hardly thanked me, but plunged into the work at once. For half an hour, the pen scratched without stopping. Then Charlie sighed and tugged his hair. The scratching grew slower. There were more erasures and at last ceased. The finest story of the world would not come forth. It looks like such awful rot now, he said mourning. He said mournfully. And yet it seemed so good when I was thinking about it. What's wrong? I could not dishearten him by saying the truth. So I answered, perhaps you don't feel in the mood for writing. Yes, I do, except when I look at this stuff. Ugh. Read me what you've done, I said. I read, and it was wondrous bad, and he paused in all the specially turgid sentences, expecting a little approval, for he was proud of those sentences, and I, as I knew he would be. It needs compression, I suggested cautiously. I hate cutting things down. I don't think you could alter a word here without spoiling the sense. It reads better aloud than when I was writing it. Charlie, you're suffering from an alarming disease afflicting a numerous class. Put the thing by and tackle it again in a week. I want to do it at once. What do you think of it? How can I judge from a half-written tale? Tell me the story as it lies in your head. Charlie told. In the telling, there was everything that his ignorance had so carefully prevented from escaping in his written word. I looked at him and wondering whether it it was whether it was uh, it was it were possible that he did not know the originality, the power, and the notion that had come in his way. It was distinctly a notion among notions. Men had been puffed up with pride by notions, not a teeth of 
Now, now that she's as excellent and, and flexible. But Charlie babbled on serenely, interrupting the current pure fantasy with samples of horrible sentences that he proposed to use. I heard him out to the end. It would be folly to allow his idea to remain in his own inept hands when I could do so much with it. Not all that could be done indeed, but oh so much. What do you think, he said at last. I fancy I shall call it the story of a ship. I think the idea is pretty good, but you won't be able to handle it forever so long. Now I... Would it be of any use to you? Would you care to take it? I should be proud, said Charlie promptly. There are a few things sweeter in this world than the guileless, hot-headed, intemperate, open admiration of a junior. Even a woman in her blindest devotion does not fall into the gate of the man she adores, tilt her bonnet to the angle at which he wears his hat, or interlard her speech with his pet o's. And Charlie did all these things. Still, it was necessary to salve my conscience before I possessed myself of Charlie's thoughts. Let's make a bargain. I, I'll give you a fiver for the notion, I said. Charlie became a bank clerk at once. Oh, that's impossible. Between two pals, you know, if I may call you so. And speaking as a man of the world, I couldn't. Take the notion if it is any use to you. I've heaps more. He had none. He had. None knew this better than I. But they were the notions of other men. Look at it as a matter of business between men of the world, I returned. Five pals will buy you any number of poetry books. Business is business, and you may be sure I shouldn't give that price unless... Oh, if you put it that way, said Charlie, visibly moved by the thought of the books. The bargain was clinched with an agreement that he should, that he should in unstated intervals come to me with all the notions that he possessed. Should he have a table of his own to write at? An unquestioned right to inflict upon me all his poems and fragments of poems. Then I said, now tell me how you came to this idea. It came by itself. Charlie's eyes opened a little. Yes, but you told me a great deal about the hero that you must have read before somewhere. I haven't any time for reading, except when you let me sit here. And on Sundays, I'm on my bicycle or down by the river all day. There's nothing wrong about the hero, is there? Tell me again, I shall understand clearly. You say that your hero went, went pirating. How did he live? He was on the lower deck of the ship thing that I was telling you about. What sort of ship? It was the kind rowed with oars. And the sea spurts through the oar holes. And the men row sitting up, sitting up to their knees in water. Then there's a bench running down between the two lines of oars. And an overseer with a whip walks up and down the bench to make the men work. How do you know that? It's in the tail. There's a rope running overhead, looped to the upper deck for the overseer to catch hold of when the ship ro uh, rolls. When the overseer misses the rope once and falls among the rowers, remember the hero laughs at him and gets licked for it. He's chained to his oar, of course, the hero. How is he chained? With an iron band round his waist, fixed to the bench he sits on and a sort of handcuff on his left wrist, chaining him to the oar. He's on the lower deck where the worst men are sent, and the only light comes from the hatchways and through the oar holes. Can't you imagine the sunlight just squeezing through between the handle and the hole 
and wobbling about the ship as the ship moves? I can, but I can't imagine you're imagining it. How could it be any other way? Now, you listen to me. The long oars on the upper deck are managed by four men to each bench. The lower ones by three, and the lowest of all by two. Remember, it's quite dark on the lowest deck, and all the men there go mad. When a man dies at his oar on that deck, he isn't thrown overboard, but cut up in his chains and stuffed through the oar hole in little pieces. Why? I demanded, amazed, not so much at the information as the tone of command in which it was flung at, flung at me. To save trouble and to frighten the others. It needs two overseers to drag a man's body up to the top deck. And if the men at the lower deck oars were left alone, of course they'd stop rowing and try to pull up the benches by all standing up together in their, in their chains. You have a most provident imagination. Where have you been reading about galleys and galley slaves? Nowhere that I remember. I row a little when I get the chance. But perhaps, if you say so, I may have read something. He went away shortly afterward to deal with, with the booksellers, and I wondered how the bank clerk, aged 20, could put into my hands with the prolific abundance of detail, all given with absolute assurance, the story of extravagant and bloodthirsty adventure, riot, piracy, and death in unnamed seas. Unnamed seas. He had led his hero to a desperate dance to revolt against the, sea, the, the overseers. To command, to command of a ship of his men and the ultimate establishment of a kingdom on an island somewhere in the sea. You know, and, delighted with my paltry five pounds, had gone out to buy the notions of other men, that these might teach him how to write. I had the consolation of knowing that this notion was mine by right of purchase, and I thought that I could make something of it. When next he came to see me, he was drunk, royally drunk on many poets for the first time revealed to him. His pupils were dilated, his words tumbled over each other, and he wrapped himself in quotations. Most of all, he was drunk with Longfellow. Isn't it splendid? Isn't it superb? He cried after hasty greetings. Listen to this. Wouldst thou, said the hel so the helmsman answered, know the secret of the sea. Only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery. By gun, only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery. He repeated twenty times, walking up and down the room and forgetting me. But I can understand it too, he said to himself. I don't know how to thank you for that fiver. And this, listen. I remember the black wharves and the ships and the sea tides tossing free and the Spanish sailors with bearded lips and the beauty mystery of the ships, and the magic of the sea. I haven't braved any dangers, but I feel as if I know all about it. You certainly seem to have a grip on the sea. Have you ever seen it? When I was a little chap, I went to Brighton once. We used to live in Coventry, though, before we came to London. I never saw it. When descendants on the Atlantic, the gigantic storm wind of the equinox. He shook me by the shoulder to make me understand the passion that was shaking himself. When that storm comes, he, called, he continued, I think that all the oars in the ship that I was talking about get broken, and the rowers have their chests smashed in by the, the bucking oarheads. By the way, have you done anything with that notion of mine yet? No, 
I was waiting to hear more of it from you. Tell me, in the world you're so certain. Tell me how in the world you're so certain about the fittings of the ship. You know nothing about ships. I don't know. It's as real as anything to me until I try to write it down. I was thinking about it only last night in bed, after you had loaned me Treasure Island, and I made up a whole lot of, of, of new things to go on the story. What sort of things? About the food the men ate. Rotten figs and black beans and wine in a skin bag passed from bench to bench. Was the ship built so long ago as that? As what? I don't know whether it was long ago or not. It's only a notion. But sometimes it seems just as real as if it was true. Do I bother you with talking about it? Not in the least. Did you make anything else? Make up anything else? Yes, but it's nonsense. Charlie, Charlie flushed a little. Never mind. Let's hear about it. Well, I was thinking over the story, and after a while, I got out of bed and wrote down on a piece of paper the sort of stuff that men might be supposed to scratch on their oars with the edges of their handcuffs. It seemed to make the thing more lifelike. It is so real to me, you know. Have you the paper on you? Yes. But what's the use of showing it? It's only a lot of scratches. All the same, we might have them reproduced in the book on the front page. I'll attend to those details. Show, show me what your man wrote. He pulled out of his pocket a sheet of notepaper with a single line of scratches upon it, and I put this carefully away. What is it supposed to mean in English? I said. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps it means I'm beastly tired. It's great nonsense, he repeated. But all those men in the ship seem as real people to me. Do do something to the notion soon. I should like to see it written and printed. But all you told me would make a long but all you told me would would make a long book. Make it then. You've only to sit sit down and write it out. Give me a little time. Have you any more notions? Not just now. I'm reading all the books I bought. They're splendid. When he had left, I looked at the sheet of notepaper with the inscription upon it. Then I took my head, I took my head tenderly between both hands to make certain that it was not coming off or turning round. Then, but there seemed to be no interval between quitting my rooms and finding. Okay, and finding myself arguing with the policeman outside the door marked private in a quarter of the British Museum. All I demanded, as politely as possible, was the Greek antiquity man. The policeman knew nothing except the rules of the museum, and it became necessary to forge through all the houses and offices inside the gates. An elderly gentleman called away from, from his lunch, put an end to my search, by holding the notepaper between them, finger and thumb, and sniffing it scornfully. What does this, man, what does this mean? Hmm, said he. So far, I can ascertain it is an attempt to write extremely corrupt Greek on the part. Here, he glared at me with intention of an extremely illiterate uh, person. He read slowly from the paper. Pollock, Erkman, Tokshnitz, Heinecker. Four names familiar to me. Can you tell me what the, what the corruption is supposed to mean? The gist of the thing? I asked. I have been many times overcome with weariness in this particular employment. That is the meaning. He returned me to he returned me to the paper, and I fled without a word of thanks, explanation, or apology.
I might have been excused for forgetting much. To me, all the men had been given the chance to write the most marvelous tale in the world. Nothing less than the story of a Greek galley slave, as told by himself. Gunshot. Wow. Small wonder that his dreaming had seemed real to Charlie. The fates that are so careful to shut the doors of each successive life behind us had, in, in this case, been neglected, and Charlie was looking, though that did not. Charlie was looking. Oh, though that he did not know. Whenever, whenever a man had been permitted to look with full knowledge since time began. Above all, he was absolutely ignorant of the knowledge said to me for five pounds. And he would retain that ignorance, for bank clerks do not understand. Best info okay, Here we go. Me, me, me. Okay. Medium psychosis. Sorry, guys. M E T E M P. Yeah. Medium psychosis. And a sound commercial education does not include Greek. He would supply me. Here I capered among the dumb gods of Egypt and laughed in their battered faces with material to make my tale sure. So sure that the world would hail it as an, as an impudent and vamp fiction. And I, I alone, would know that it was absolutely and literally true. I, I alone, held this jewel in my hand for the cutting and polishing. Therefore, I danced again amongst the gods until a policeman saw me and took steps in my direction. It remained now only to encourage Charlie to talk, and herein there was no difficulty. But I had forgotten those accursed books of poetry. He came to me time after time, as useless as a surcharged phonograph, drunk on Byron, Shelley, and Keats, knowing now what the boy had been in his past lives, and desperately anxious not to lose one word of it in his, of his babble. I could not hide from him in my respect and interest. He misconstrued both into retrospect for the present. Look at that, it's a studying about past lives. From the present soul and Charlie, of Charlie Mears, to whom life was as new as if it was to Adam, and interest in his readings, and stretched my patience to breaking point by reciting poetry, not his own now, but that of the others. I wished every English poet blotted out the memory of mankind. I blasphemed the mightiest names of song, hang on, let me get up here, of song, because they had drawn Charlie from the path of direct narrative and would later spur him to imitate them. But I choked down my impatience until the first flood of enthusiasm should have spent itself and the boy returned to his dreams. What's the use of telling you that? What's the use of telling you what I think? When these chaps wrote things for the angels to read, he growled one evening. Why don't you write something like theirs? I don't think you're treating me quite fairly, I said, speaking under strong restraint. I've given you the story, he said, shortly replunging re into Lara. But I want the details. The things I make up about the damn ship that you call the galley, they're quite easy. You can just make them up yourself. Turn up the gas a little. I want to go on reading. I could have broken the gas globe over his head for his amazing stupidity. I could indeed make up things for myself that, that I only hope that Charlie did not know that he knew. But since the doors were shut behind me, I could only wait. I could only wait his useful, his useful pleasure and strive to keep him in good temper. One minute's want of guard might spoil 
a priceless revelation. Now and again, he would toss his books aside and kept them in my rooms, where his mother would have been shocked at the waste of good money had she seen them, and laughed into his sea dreams. Again, I cursed all the poets of England. The plastic mine and the bank clerk had been overlaid, colored, and distorted by that which he had read. And the result, as delivered, was, his confu- was a confused tangle of other voices that, other voices like, like the result, I'm sorry, like the muttered song through a city telephone in the busiest part of the day. He talked of the galley, his own galley, had he but known it, with the illustrations borrowed from the bride. This is fascinating because this is, this is a past life thing. He's, he, he, he's having a past life recollection. This is great. He talked of the galley, his own galley, he had but didn't know it, with illustrations borrowed from the bride of Abydos. He pointed the experiences of his hero with quotations from the Corsair and threw in deep and desperate moral reflections from Cain and Manfred, expecting me to use them all. Only when the talk turned on Longfellow were the jarring cross-currents dumb, and I knew that Charlie was speaking the truth as he remembered it. What do you think of this, I said one evening, as soon as I understood the medium in which his memory worked best, and before he could postulate, read him the whole of the saga of King Olaf. He listened open-mouthed, flushed his, flushed his hands drumming on the back of the sofa where he lay, till I came to the songs of Imar, of Imar, here we go, here's the name, Imar Tamberskelver, T-A-M-B-E-R-S-K-E-T-Tamberskelver, Skelver, yeah, and the verse, Imar then the arrow taking from the loosened string answered, that was Norway breaking neath thy hand, O king. He gasped with pure delight of sound. That's better than Byron, a little, I ventured. Better? Why, is, why it's true? How could he have known? I went back and repeated. What was that? said Olaf, standing on the quarter deck. Something heard I like the stranding of a shattered wreck. How could he have known how the ships would crash and the oars rip out of the go? and go zip all along the line. Why only the other night? But to go back, please, and read the scary shrieks again. No, I'm tired. Let's talk what happened the other night. I had an awful nightmare about that galley of ours. I dreamed I was drowned in a fight. You see, we ran alongside another ship in harbor. The water was dead still, except where our oars whipped it up. You know where I always sit on the galley, right? He spoke haltingly at first, under a fine English fear of being laughed at. No, that's news to me, I answered. Me, I answered meekly, my heart began to beat. On the fourth oar from the bow, on the right side of the upper deck, there were four of us at the oar, all chained. I remember watching the water and trying to get my handcuffs off before the road began. Then we closed up on the other ship, and all their fighting men jumped on our, on our bulwarks, and my bench broke, and I was pinned down, with, three, with the three other fellows on top of me, and the big oar jammed across our backs. Well, Charlie's eyes were alive and alight. He was looking at the wall behind my chair. I don't know how we fought. The men were trampling all over my back, and I lay low. Then our rowers on the left side tried their own cars, or tried their own oars, 
you know, began to yell or tied to the owner, sorry, tied to the owners, began to yell and back to yell in back water. I could hear the water sizzle and we spun around like 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 like, like cock shaver, and I knew, lying where I was, that there was a galley coming up bow on. Chiramus on the left side. I could just lift up my head and see her sail over the bulwarks. He wanted to meet we wanted to meet her bow, but it was too late. We could only turn a little we could only turn a little bit because the galley of our right had hooked herself onto us, and we stopped our moving. Then, by gum, there was a crash. Our left oars began to break as the other galley, the moving one, you know, struck her nose into them. Then the lower deck cars shot up through the deck planking. But first, and one of those jumped clean up into the air and came down again close to my head. How was that managed? The, the moving galley's bow was, was plunking them back through their own oarholes. And I could hear the devil of a, of a shindy in the decks below. Then her nose caught up nearly in the middle. And we tilted sideways. And the fellows in the right-hand galley unhitched their hooks and ropes and threw things onto our upper deck. Sound like arrows. At hot pitch or something like that stung. And we went up and up on the left. And the right side dipped. And I twisted my head round and saw the water stand still as, as it toppled the right bulwarks. And then it was curled over and crashed down on the whole lot of us on the right side. And I felt it hit my back. And I woke. One minute, Charlie. When the sea topped the bulwarks, what did it look like? I had my reasons for asking. A man of my acquaintance had once gone down with a leaking ship in a still sea, and had seen the water level pause for an instant, ere it fell on the, it fell on the deck. It looked like a banjo string drawn tight, and it seemed to stay there for years, said Charlie. Exactly, the other man had said. It looked like a silver wire laid down along the bulwark, and I thought it was never going to break. He paid everything except to bear life for this little valueless piece of knowledge, and I had traveled 10,000 weary miles to meet him and take his knowledge at second hand. But Charlie, the bank clerk, on 25 shillings a week, he who had never been out of sight of the London omnibus, knew it all. It was no consolation to me that once in his lives he had been forced to die for his gains. I also must have dried scores of time. I also must have died scores of times, but behind me, because I could, I could have used my knowledge. The doors were shut. And then, I said, trying to put away the devil of envy. The funny thing was, though, in all the mess, I didn't feel a bit astonished or frightened. It seemed as if I'd been in a good many fights, because I told my next man, so when the row began. But that cat of an overseer on my deck wouldn't unloose our chains and give us a chance. He always said that we'd all be set free after a battle, but we never were. We never were. Charlie shook his head mournfully. What a scoundrel. I should say he was. He never gave us enough to eat. And sometimes we were so thirsty that we used to drink salt water. I can taste that salt water still. Now tell me something about the harbor where the fight was fought. I didn't dream about that. I know it was a harbor. Though because we were tied up to a ring on a white wall, and all the face of the stone underwater was covered with wood to prevent our, our, our to prevent our ram getting chipped when the tide made us rock. 
That's curious. Our hero came out of the galley, didn't he? Didn't he just? He stood by the he stood by the bows and shouted, like a good one. He was the man who killed the overseer. But you were all drowned together, Charlie, weren't you? I can't make that fit quite, he said with a puzzled look. The galley must have gone down with all our hands, and yet I fancy that the young hero went living afterward. Perhaps he climbed into the attacking ship. I wouldn't see that, of course. I was dead, you know. He shivered slightly and protested that he could remember no more. I did not press him further, but to satisfy myself that he lay in ignorance on the workings of his own mind, deliberately introduced him to the Mortimer Collins transmigration and gave him a full sketch of the plot before he opened the pages. What rot it all is, he said. Frankly, at the end of an hour, I don't understand this nonsense about the red planet Mars and the king and the rest of it. Chuck me the Longfellow again. I handed him the book and wrote out as much as I could remember of his description of the sea fight, appealing to him from time to time for confirmation of the fact or detail. He would answer without raising his eyes from the book, as assuredly as though all his knowledge lay, lay before Flint on the printed page, I spoke under the normal key of my voice that the current might not be broken. And I know that he was not aware of what he was saying, for his thoughts were out on the sea with Longfellow's. Charlie, I asked, when the rowers on the galleys mutinied, how did they kill their overseers? Tore up the benches and brained them. That happened when a heavy sea was running. An overseer on the lower deck slipped from the center plank and fell among the rowers. They choked him to death against the side of the ship with their chained hands quite quietly. And it was too dark for the other overseer to see what had happened. When he asked, he was pulled down too and choked. And the lower deck fought their way up, de fought their way up deck by deck, and the pieces of the broken benches banging behind them. How they howled! And what happened after that? I don't know. The hero went away, red hair and red beard and all. That was after he had captured our galley, I think. The sound of my voice irritated, irritated him, and he motioned slightly with his left hand as a man does when interruption jars. You will, you never told me. He was redheaded before, or that he captured your galley, I said, after a discreet interval. Charlie did not raise his eyes. He was as red as a red bear, said he abstractedly. He came from the north, and they said so in the great galley when he looked for rowers, not slaves, but free men. Afterward, years and years afterward, news came from another ship, or else he came back. His lips moved in silence. He was rapturously retelling some poem before him. Where had he been then? I was almost whispering that the sentence might be gentle to whichever section of Charlie's brain was working on my behalf. To the beaches. The long and wonderful beaches was the reply. After a minute of silence, of course. <laughs> the, the fertile strategy, I asked, tingling from head to foot. Yes, the fertile strategy. He pronounced the word in a new fashion. And I, too, saw the voice fail. Do you know what you said? I shouted incautiously. He lifted his eyes, fully roused now. No, he snapped. I wish you'd let a chap go on reading. Hark to this. But others, the old sea captain, he neither paused nor stirred till the king listened. And then, once more, took up his pen and wrote down every word. 
and to the king of the Saxons, in witness of the truth, raising his noble head, he stretched his brown hand and said, Behold, this walrus tooth. By Jove, what chaps those must have been, to go sailing all over the shop, never knowing where they'd fetched the land. Ha! Charlie, I pleaded. If you'll only be sensible for a minute or two, I'll make you our hero in the tale every inch as good as the others. Umph, Longfellow wrote that poem. I don't care about writing things anymore. I want to read. He was thoroughly out of the out of tune now, and raging over my over my own ill luck, I left him. All right, that's a good place to stop. We'll uh, continue uh, next week. And uh, this has turned out to be an interesting story, didn't it? Let me get over here now, take a look at you guys. Ah, we're over here. And uh, this turned out to be an interesting story after all. I mean, it's all about past life. Pretty cool, pretty cool, pretty cool. Okay, tomorrow I will be back here at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with Courtney McAvale. And we will be talking about Civil War ghosts. And she's written the stories about ghosts in Georgia, stories about ghosts and elsewhere as well, all over New England. So she's going to be with us to talk Civil War ghosts. And there are some really cool Civil War ghost stories out there. And I, I, I know a lot of them. So we'll see what she has to say tomorrow. I want to thank you all for coming today. I really appreciate it. And uh, sorry for some of the mispronunciations and stuff. It's, like I said, these things have been translated um, you know, by people over the years so that they're available online. So a lot of the paragraphs like meld together sometimes. So, this, so it's sometimes awkward to read, but um, it's well worth it. I'm enjoying this immensely. Anyway, thank you all. Um, again, please do remember that Nancy Mass is going to be doing readings on February 4th at 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, check it out. The link's down at the bottom here uh, for the California Haunts Meetup. And I also have links for our meditation club that we, we hold monthly. And uh, people are able to do meditations three to four times a week and kind of mellow out, you know, if you're having stressful days and health problems and all that stuff. Okay, I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I hope you have a great rest of your evening. And see ya. Have a